everybody and welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of the Health and Sports Show. My name is Tom Busfield. I'm your host and I'm really, really pleased today to have a fantastic conversation with a very good friend of mine, uh, Dave Cook, who is joining us all the way from wonderful Belgium. Uh, Dave has been someone that I've looked up to over the years because of his pursuit of excellence and his ability to look outside of the box and maybe ask questions and find solutions that others aren't willing to look for. So, um, hello, Dave. How are you? I'm, I'm good, thanks, Tommy, and thanks for having me, mate. If you could just give the listeners a little intro, maybe an intro of your last two uh, roles that you've been in. Okay, um, so more recently, I, I moved to Norway in 2013. I took up the position as the Olympic Taekwondo coach there, where kind of my job was a little bit outside just coaching. It was developing a full-time system there. Um, I did two Olympic cycles in Norway, and then more recently, I moved to Belgium um, to become technical director of a, of another taekwondo system, if you like, for the Flemish side. Um, but they were in a rebuild, so it was like a little bit like the Norway project, but on a different kind of scale. So rebuilding programs and um, rebuilding the environment, if you like. When you're going in to rebuild a system, because I would imagine... I mean, it's never easy to to continue a successful system, but I would imagine it's even harder to go into a place and sort of rebuild it all, almost from the from the foundations. I think one of the hardest things is, but it's also one of the most kind of progressive things for a coach, for a director, for a person to do is is to actually relocate mm-hmm. because part of you can't rebuild a system if you don't know the culture. If you don't know the inner workings of of their psyche, of their deep down beliefs, of their of what's gone on historically, and all this kind of landscape, if you like, that's mashed together to to kind of perform the here and now. If you don't know that, then it's really, really difficult. Because all you end up doing then is just imprinting or projecting what you think should happen based on your biases, based on your confirmations, um, and we all have them, and we all resort to them as default. If we don't have that kind of willingness to engage with a different culture or learn a little bit more, then we will automatically go to default. And sometimes that works, but a lot of the time that causes more problems than it does solutions. So moving to moving to Norway, first of all, what were the cultural differences you found with athletes training in the UK compared to over in Norway? I think not even just athletes, just in the UK, as, as you know, and as I'm sure most of your listeners know, it's very much a push. It's very much let's get it done. It has to be done now. Get this. And it's like it's a real kind of emphasis on the work. Whereas in Scandinavia in general, and particularly Norway, there's, a, there's much more of a kind of bal- a real balance. Like we always talk about balance, but in reality, it's often not possible, you know. But in Norway, they really try and get this balance. But in doing that, I guess I would describe them as as a culture that's quite flat. And I don't mean that as in their persona. I mean that in terms of like everyone gets things. It's not like one bit excels and the others get downtrodden. They really try and make society level. Mm-hmm. And that's hard in sport because you then have people who don't really have to do sport to yeah. achieve that excellence, you know, because mm-hmm. they're not looked down on. It's not like they're not excelled all the time. The difficulty was in essence, trying to find the Norwegians who weren't quite Norwegian. You know, the, the the ones that just had that little bit, maybe a little bit of spite about them or just a bit of different thinking about them because we were never going to make them richer than they would get in a job in Norway. Not a chance. So the difficulty, was, first of all, was finding that kind of population, but finding it in a very, very small data pool. You know, in the senior nationals, we had 15. When you're selecting athletes for those national pools, what did you put more weight on? Did you put it more on the technical ability or did you also put as equal a weight onto the uh, the, the mental side of it as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, 
People would tell you when I was doing my PhD in mechanics that I was very down on psychology. Um, I was never down on psychology. Um, I just was down on on all science basically being separate from each other. I like this kind of intertwining. So I think the simplest answer to that is you can't just put it on physical emphasis or you can't just put it on a site. You have to look a little bit. I think the term they use nowadays is biopsychosocial. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to look a little bit more integrated. Obviously, when you're doing so-called detection, people usually want a kind of quantitative measure. So you'll do some testing and you maybe do some psychological um, scales or questionnaires, etc. But I think it's really important then that they're only used as a discussion. They're not used as a selection. Now, mm-hmm. it's different if it's just a sport that requires a VO2 of 77, you know, because uh-huh. you can exclude everyone who's in the 50s and 60s, you know. Sure. But taekwondo, the sport we were going into, yes, it's very technical. Yes, it's very tactical. But majority of it is decision making, you know, and that's a really complex area mm-hmm. of human behavior is decision making because it intertwines everything. If you had a, have a bad physical shape, your decision-making is suffering. If you have a great physical shape, your decision-making suffers, and, and people think it may suffer that you become positive, but you can also become quite negative when you become over-consumed by your physicality, etc. So I, I tried to balance it up. Um, to be honest, I wasn't the best at doing this to start with. I think I'm better now. Um, mm-hmm. if, if I was to go back then, I would be able to do it to a greater extent, but that should be the case for everything we do. That in eight, ten years, you should be better at understanding what you're kind of doing. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's the process of of understanding, be aware of where our weaknesses are, or maybe the things we could have done better. And that sort of leads us into we had a really good conversation uh, a little while back uh, last week. We started to touch on uh, self awareness didn't we? And then you took it that little level deeper and you spoke about the role awareness of Mm -hmm. of athletes and coaches. Just wondering if you could expand on that a bit for us. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've learned or still learning, I wouldn't say I've learned it, is this idea of of a kind of network of your, if you you like, a network that's within the ecology or within the environment and, um, and all the actors that are in this network and all the roles that not only they expect to play, but what they should be playing. And um, so one of the things we like to do, or I like to do, or the groups that we're with like to do, is is to try and um, get athletes to understand the value of, of themselves, but not, like we talked about how people get so consumed by their identity being embroiled in their sport. And COVID showed that when that's taken away, it, it's quite dramatic effects, you know. Um, and I think we owe it as a duty of care that we develop athletes who are not um, overly consumed by their identity in one thing. So um, what we like to do is, so mine's an individual sport, but it's the same in a team sport. Team sports, individual sport, to be honest, it's pretty much the same because you never get to the end of a journey on your own. There's always a a team involved in some way, shape or form. And so I think one of the things that's really interesting is when you ask athletes, what do they bring? What is it that the people, if they look around the room could rely on for them to always bring. And some people would automatically move their brain to the skill set of the sport. So I could bring this kick or this technique. And to which I would say, but what if your leg's broke? You can't bring it. What if you're injured? You can't bring it. So we need something deeper than that. We need something that you can, that you can always bring. So who are you? You know, what is this, this thing that you can, that no matter what, you know that you can bring this to a situation that may help or hinder. It depends on the situation, you know, and that's another side of role awareness. But we try and get the athlete to look a little bit deeper than just the, the superficial layer of the sport and, and understand that that they can bring something of their character, truly of their character, that maybe even emerges as they go through their sport or their life, that adds value to a group um, or to a system or to a situation. And um, they, this is important because if you 
get them thinking about these things. These are transferable. These aren't just sport because this isn't about the technique and tactics. This is about them and they are transferable. You know, in whatever realm they decide to go into, they are transferable. And again, I think it's our duty of care, no matter if it's top sport or recreational sport, it doesn't matter. It's our duty of care to, to try and develop the individual on whatever level that is. It's really nice to hear you say that because, again, in our conversation, I, I spoke about the the work that I've started to do with uh, a football team down in England with, with Milton Keynes Dons. And the head of the academy there, Ben Smith, he he came to me before he took the role on there and, and said, no, that's a 99% failure rate that a footballer is going to make it from an academy into into a professional football. And I'm sure it's it's quite similar with a recreational TKD athlete to get into an Olympic Games or getting an international uh, vest. And he said, right, what can we do to help these young lads or young ladies in the academies realize what strengths they have, what abilities they have and how they can grow those? You know, you said yourself, you know, you hope that within the seven or eight, nine years that you've been moving through the system that you've learned something and it should be more than just technical, tactical. Uh, it should be something about themselves and seeing that when they finish playing their sport, whenever that is, it could be in six months, it could be in, in 20 years time, who knows, but the end does come at some point and their role will change within that sport where they turn from athlete to coach or they go from athlete to pundit or they just go from athlete to being a parent or, a, or a, a husband or a wife, whatever it be that role will change and it's it's understanding they do have value outside of of whatever sport that they excel at. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the term elite is used a lot and I think misused um, because we, we start to project these words to 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds and, <laughs> and we don't realise the connotations of projecting these words. So. But... If we do use the term elite as being like the highest level of sports or the highest senior level, in essence, it is only a small amount that, that truly make it. Even in football, we look at football and we say, oh, there's millions playing football. But in terms of how many actually practice football, it's a small amount who make it. Sure. You know, um, And in taekwondo, it's, it's a really small amount who make it to the Olympics. And, um, and that's like the ultimate, if you like, that people aspire to. So... We have to give value to the process much more. They have to get something out of it. Now, it doesn't mean we're selling out and we're not trying to produce top athletes. It just means that we're actually trying to practice what we preach. We talk a lot about athletes being in the process and, you know, and trusting the process, which are these kind of utopian terms that we throw around. And Absolutely. It's like a magic pill. Say the, say the words and then they'll be okay. <laughs> um but we need to practice this a little bit ourselves and really start to think about what is this process that we're talking about on its micro level, on its macro level, and, and whatever kind of area you're dealing it with. What, what is this process and how do we actually give value to the development health needs of an athlete? You know, and, and that's crucial if we're going to end up with sustainable sport, even. You know, nowadays we, we're getting so many. Um, stories of, of safeguarding issues and all these kind of things that come out, people making extreme weights, people playing through injury or people popping pills to get over injury. And, and we wonder why that is. And I think sometimes we need to just take a step back and start thinking, but what is this process we're talking about? Hmm. You know, what, what, what does it actually look like? When you hear of, of athletes playing under pressure of, of injury, where would you stand with it? Obviously, every situation would be different. But what, what's, your, what's your view on, on that of, of competitors competing with injuries or with, with maybe mental health, you know, yellow flags or, or things mm -hmm. like that? I think the term they use again in sport a lot is it depends. You know, mm -hmm. and I think yeah. what that actually means sure. is it's a bit complicated. Absolutely. You know, situations are complicated. Now, am I saying that we're trying to get athletes to not be resilient? No, I'm not. We mm. want to develop resilient athletes. But then again, what do we mean by resilient? Um, there's some really good research being done on it at the minute, actually. So my standpoint is 
first of all, we need to understand the direct and indirect influences on this athlete. That's the first thing we need to do because that often leads to how they start to see success. They have their own vision of success and the connection A has a vision of success and connection B has a vision of success and all the way out there, connection Z has a vision of success. And all of these connections have a ripple effect. No matter how small they are, they have a ripple effect. So I think it, as a kind of in a director role, for example, or in a coach's role, you need to start to understand this, first of all. What are the ripple effects that come through with this um, that, that create this vision of success? And what does success look like? Mm. You know, at this point in time, what is success for us? And that can then move you towards a, a perspective of to what extent do we um i will use a term but it's the wrong term do we risk at what uh-huh. like to what extent do we risk at this point and that's a lot to do with what success looks like at that point mm-hmm. and what success looks like in the future and the next stage and uh, and this is all integrated by different levels different ages different brackets different influences in that but i think one of the biggest things we can do is a uh, I actually do a little round table here that's called, what does success look like? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And I, sometimes I have parents in it, sometimes the coaches in it. And it's different. It's so different. Yeah. And yet they're in the same environment. You know, and so we need to try and get the environment, especially the direct influence environment, to align a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can make a real objective perspective of, okay, now we do need to risk a little bit. You know, but this wouldn't be a young age. This would be more in a mature status and when someone can make rational decisions as well. Um, my my issue with a lot of sport is that we not not even specialize too early, we professionalize too early. A, a conversation I had with my my son recently was around uh, goal setting and you and you mentioned you mentioned about what was success like. Quite often People don't actually sit down and, and think about that, do they? they? They'll maybe think, right, uh, success for me is a gold medal at the Olympics, and that's it. And my point to my son was, that's okay to have that goal. It's an achievement goal. However, there are so many things within that goal that are no longer in your control that you could be the best possible you you could possibly be, yet you could come away from that feeling as if you failed. So we do a thing with, with the coach that I have here, Coach Aliria is a very good coach, really open to, to learn and advancing. Um, we do a target process. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that as a team as well. We do individual target process, and then we have where are we as a team? You know, Excellent. where actually are we? Where do we want to go? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a few ways we do it. Sometimes we'll do like draw a few lines on a page. At the top of it, tell me what your goal is. Now, Tell me where you are relative to that goal and describe mm-hmm. them phases in between it. Yeah. You know, so we do this kind of ambiguous way mm-hmm. or we'll do a more kind of the logical kind of way where we'll say, right, what's the target for this period? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're very much about trying to get them to be where their feet, feet are, you know, right. because it's that old thing of this one eye is there and one eye is there, then we're half blind, you know. It's, mm-hmm. So we really try and get them to be where their feet are. And so... In this situation that you're in now, what is your primary target? And um, let's say to get selected for the European Championships. And then we'll just do the simple thing of, I like to ask why. I like to ask mm-hmm. them, why is this important to you? You know, why does it mean something to you? Um, so that's more of a discussion thing than anything. I like to use all these things, particularly to have discussions to build the relationship. And to learn more about the individual, you know. Um, so, and after the why, you then go to the next logical thing. Okay, so how? How do we achieve it? And then they may come up with something, beat higher ranked players, win some medals. And then you say again, so how? And how? And how? Until you get it all the way down to where your feet are, yeah. which is where you are now. Okay, in training, I need to be this mentality, focus on these. Technically, tactically, I need to have these process goals, dum-dum. When I um, do training, I evaluate based on these processes here, these tack, tack, tack. 
bang, bang, bang. I communicate that with my coach. We come to an agreement. And then I ask them to fold the paper over so they only see the bottom bit of the page. I never look at the top bit until three months or so, four months, as long as time that we decide on. Because they've already made a commitment with the coach in agreement that these will get them there. And so now they can be happy being where their feet are. Now, the real challenge comes, though, when you go to a, a competition environment, because now we have different stresses, we have different um, expectations from people, so on and so forth. So now the real skill of the support system is to keep them embedded in these process goals when everyone else is trying to pull them away from them. And, and even their own mind is trying to pull them away from them. Um, and that, I think, is where the relational aspect of coaching or the relational aspect of system support is critical. Do you think in, in that respect, so you could be happy with an athlete to go to a competition and maybe get a poor result, but be happy with what they were doing on the mat to try and further the process that they've set themselves? Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I, like I said earlier, I think, at some point, it's just going to say, get on the mat and win. Mm -hmm. At some point, you know, yeah. it, you know, we're now at that stage. We're at perform on demand stage. We are mm -hmm. elite. We should be winning a bit. Yeah. Okay, now, hopefully by that point, you've, you've got them to the stage that, yes, I know I, I, I'm going to win this medal now, but I know how I do it. I stick yeah. to these process goals. Mm -hmm. To get to that, you have to give value to the process goals, which means you have to stop your own ego going, mm, for crying out loud, we <laughs> lost, blah, blah, blah. Apologies for the, the sound that just came on. Um, and you have to really commit to that win or lose at certain levels of competition, the first thing that they hear you evaluating with them are these process goals, mm -hmm. not the result, because now they start to get some value. Absolutely. If not, if the first thing we, we discuss is, an attribution aspect, or oh, bad refereeing, or, or the result didn't go our way, unlucky, so on and so forth. Now we move the value away from what we're trying to embed them in so that when it does get perform on demand, they already know how they get there. Mm -hmm. You know, perform on demand doesn't mean, even though they can vocalize that we're going to win today, we're going to get a medal, but they know straight away the structure that gets in that, A, B, and C, process goal, process goal, process goal. So we have to give value to that very early in this process, which means sometimes you you sacrifice um, constraining them to win. If you know what I mean, it's very it's quite comfortable to win some fights. You can constrain them and yeah. and say we beat this opponent just by doing this, but maybe that doesn't get you where you need to get. So I would say that a simple answer is yes to your question. Um, sometimes. You know, sometimes you, what you've got to try and do a little bit is, especially in the early stages of development, is you have to take away from them the fact that, you know, they can't influence certain things. They have to they have to understand what they can influence. We always talk about control the controllables. Mm -hmm. I like to say control the controllables and it will influence the things you cannot influence because it will have a ripple effect, you know, and. As long as we can keep them understanding what the controllables are, again, in sport, we use these real terms all the time, but we never actually peel the onion skin back mm -hmm. and, and go deep. Or maybe we do. Maybe I'm doing injustice. Maybe just certain times I haven't seen this happening. And um, we peel the onion skin back and actually get to the, the center of what is a process, you know, what is a target. You know, what is a goal? What yeah. all this kind of thing. I think we just need to go a little bit deeper sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. I it's interesting to hear about the, the the process. I'm a huge fan of that. I think every goal, every achievement goal, you have to have those habit process goals and, and, and processes underneath in order to reach them. And I love that idea of just folding the page over. Because I think that completely focuses the athlete and the coach and everyone knowing exactly what's expected of them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what they're going to be held accountable for, what they're going to be responsible for over the next three month period and what's going to ultimately get them to where they want to get to. And they know how it's going to happen. They know why it's going to happen and they can just have that little reminder. And it just, it's almost like a, a, a ship that's sailing. If it goes one degree off course for uh, an un, 
an indefinite amount of time, they're a huge, huge distance away from their actual port, aren't they? Uh, if you can have those athletes just every day, just being those little, just a little tap, little reminder, just to, to reset the course, just get them back on. It just makes a much more efficient process, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and and the, you touched a, a bit on the language as well of, of talking to the athlete about the process. Uh, it, it reminds me a bit of, of the book Bounce by uh, Matthew Syed. Have you, have you read that one? It's quite a while. I haven't, no. I haven't. Quite, quite an old book. And that sort of changed a, a lot of things for me about mindset about things. I, I used to think, oh, well, you know, these these elite athletes, you know, the, the top international standard, a lot of that is they're naturally good. But, of course, when you peel back the onion and you have a look further, you see that years and years and years of hard work and, uh, and and processes have gone into place in order to make it and, and bounce sort of opened that up to me. Um, another thing that you, you were talking about was developing the red thread for an athlete as well. If you can expand on that, that'd be great. Cause I found this really interesting. Yeah. So something we, we stumbled on, I think in, in Norway, um, so, so it's on, on different levels. So I'll take it first on the game level and then we can move it to the individual personal level. Um, so something we stumbled on in, in Norway was that we, we had an athlete and they were very, very talented. I choose the term. I hate the term, but they were very, very, <laughs> they had good potential. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. And they were reaching this potential now and, and they were starting to show it. And then at a really big competition, it didn't happen. It just didn't happen. It was close, but it they weren't there, if you know what I mean. They weren't the usual thing. And so we reflected after and we said, So so what do you what did you feel? What was and it came back to this idea of paralysis by analysis that the individual thought they had too many options. Right. They they were they was explorative in their game and, and they had a lot of options, but they had too many options. And so we said, Okay, right. So what do we do about it? And so we had a chat and I said, okay, we're going to build a red thread. And we just came up with this term. We're going to build a red thread because it's the red line that runs through things. And so we, we then said, how do we do it? So we got the individual to say the, the kind of technique and the tactics that, are, that they felt their whole wall was built on. That without it, it would just crumble. If they, again, peeled the onion back, without mm. these bits, it would crumble. And so we said, okay, so in this period of time, we're going to commit to just playing these things or, or we're prioritizing it. In, in games, things happen. You can go with how it emerges, but then you go back to committed to these things and we're going to ingrain them. We're going to ingrain them so much that you're going to create an anchor that when your boat starts drifting, it doesn't drift that far. So you will always feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. You will always feel like you have control of it. And it worked really, really well. Like to the extent this individual started winning lots of things based only on the red thread, you know, hardly any other yeah. thing. And to this day, when I watch this athlete, you watch them fight and you can see when it spirals out, they automatically go back to a red thread. Now, it's not rocket science. It's just it's the building blocks of something. I think we also can start looking at this again when a bit like the thing we were talking about in role awareness, that you can start looking at the building blocks of the individual's identity. You know, what is the red thread of this individual? And and to get that, we need to start looking at, okay, what are the values of this individual? You know, what is it that, that feeds them, if you like? Why, why do they behave in certain ways? Why do they see certain behavior as being compromising? And why do they see certain other behaviors as being acceptable? And so we have this idea of a red thread of game, but it probably also interlinks with a red thread of individual, of of the identity of a person. So one of the things that we also try and do with this network is is to understand people's values, not to force them on people. But if you you get a group of six people and, and you ask them to really think about what they see as their values and then to, to give you examples of these values because it's again we don't want paper exercises too often in in business in sport in school we have paper exercises and you think putting something on a wall means it's done 
And the brain thinks it's done as well. Yeah. So we forget yeah. to actually go through the behaviors. So let, let's say we, we say trust is one of my values. Trust is a really strong point for me, or honesty is a really strong point. Then on one side, we would say, well, tell us what behaviors look like when it's performed in a manner that you think is acceptable. You know, what are the underpinning behaviors? What does it look like to be honest? Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, what does it look like when honesty is compromised? So you start to get a real underpinning of people's values and an, a view, again, it's a bit like the what does success look like, a view of what their values look like to them. And then as a group, you will, you will very easily find common characteristics of this. So you may not even want to class them as values. You may just say a behavior structure, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll start to find these common aspects of it. And from then, from that, you will also start to see how that feeds into their game. You know, not specifically their gameplay, but their relational aspects with coaches, for example. Um, So it gives the coach some understanding of how they need to behave to see honesty for this individual to know that they're being honest or -hmm. or so on and so forth. And and then you can even foster that network even, even a little bit more. You can, okay, so you... Athlete A to coach B, what do you expect from them then? And coach B, what do you expect from them? Mm-hmm. And this all starts to form the red thread of a relationship, the red thread of, of the individual, and it all interlines to the landscape where the red thread of game is played. I've kind of gone around to come back, but that's that's yeah. what human behavior is. Absolutely. You know? going, going on from that, you, you talked about the, what the coaches expect from the athletes and the athletes expect from the coaches. You've also mentioned that there's been a huge change in that over the last few years since since COVID lockdowns. And also you're, you're very aware that the athletes that you're coaching are not of the same generation as, as their coaches, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. even two generations different. How... How do you go about building those relationships when you've got potentially such a huge difference in ideology uh, and values of of the athlete to the coach? Yeah, um, the the point you're making is it's so relevant, and it's something which I've really been thinking about a lot in the last year or so. And that's how, again, it goes back to that kind of default behaviour, that confirmation of experience. How we as coaches or we as support system or whatever it is, project the world that we think they live in to these athletes. We project this kind of idea of, okay, this is what you need to do. This is what you, like, like we understand it. And we may have some understanding of it, but we don't live their life. Mm. And their life is very different to our life. As you know, Tom, like if I if I fought before in a competition, hardly anyone had a video camera. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, the closest we got to mobile was a cup on a string and you shout really loud, you know? <laughs> it's that kind of thing. So so you could have a real bad day at the office and then no one knows about it really, mm. unless you tell them. Yeah. Nowadays it's like the the mayhem that a young individual's life lives within. Um, and this constant signal interference, noise signal, noise signal, noise signal, and, and trying to work out what that is. It's quite unique to me. I, I don't understand it. So one of the first things I try and do is say, tell me about it. Teach me. Because mm-hmm. then I can maybe have a little think about what kind of tools you need, not to just traverse sport, but to tra- traverse your life and sport yeah. within your life. And I think if we can invite these young, it's mainly young young individuals because that's their new generation, if you like. If we can invite these young athletes to to let us into their world a little bit more and, and actually explain to us what it is they feel like or what they go through or what they do in certain situations, then then we can use our experience to try and strategize and work out routines and provide um, building blocks for tools, et cetera, which can then maybe facilitate 
their progress within that landscape. And it, it intrigues me, to be honest. It really intrigues me the the life they're in. I'm, I'm very quick to say I hate social media because I hate social media. <laughs> but I hate it for me. Mm. And, and I'm very quick to project it that this is bad for them. But I don't live in that world. Maybe it's a crucial, mm. critical part for them. You know, so then they need skills to deal with it, to to um, traverse, like I said, them kind of landscapes. Um, and this is why I use a lot of things. Like, you know, like load monitoring in sport. Yeah. Load monitoring is huge in football. And I've been doing it on Excel and writing some things for a long time um, just to get a perspective of certain loads. And then I stopped at one point and went, I think it was when I was plotting something. I went, I think I'm plotting noise in the signal here right and then i went well does it matter for what i'm using it for predominantly am i really using it for trying to predict when they may be overloading or am i using it more to actually get them to know their body and also to call them in and have a discussion Mm -hmm. and i start to realize that you know this contemporary thing of load monitoring could actually be really useful just as a as a relational guide. Ah, how are you doing there, athlete A, which we don't call them, obviously. Um, <laughs> come on in a little bit. I just want to talk a little bit about your load. And so, oh, okay, you know, on your wellness reports, a little bit of a negative mood. So talk, talk to me a little bit about your life. And then they can actually let me know what life is like mm. for them. And then I can stop and have a think and, and move things forward. It, it comes down to the simple fact of, of basically revealing that we're a little bit vulnerable and we don't know everything. And because we don't know everything, we're going to project that we know everything because we're in this area of power and we're well looked up to and all this. Instead of going, wait on, we could really add value if we got their knowledge. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting is is the vulnerability side of it because from the coach's side of it, I'm sure it's... like you say, they're in that position of, of authority. They're in that position of trust to to get the athlete to, to where they want to get to, to the goal. So they almost need to put that armor on and, and pretend or, or act out that they know everything. And then, of course, the athlete has got the same issue because yeah. they're supposed to be the best. They're supposed to be the one who's uh, the, the guiding light, going to win the, the medals or reach the goals. So they put the armor on. So you end up with two people sitting there not really telling each other the full story. Exactly. And of course, then they have that less risk or less chance, I should say, potentially to reach the goal that they want to get to. So like you say, by by taking that armor off, by building that relationship, by understanding each other's values, you now going back to the previous question, understanding their values, what their uh, what makes them tick, what their fears are, all of a sudden you get closer, you get that bond and you get more likelihood, I think, for that athlete to open up and say, well, yeah, coach, I'm actually really struggling with this. You know, I'm finding this hard. I am tired because mm-hmm. I would imagine in a in that competitive environment, the selection issues, an athlete doesn't want to get kicked off the team, do they? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's like we, we you say to an athlete, okay, we need you to be honest. Come on. Mm-hmm. Unless they truly are interconnected in this value-based way, like trust, honesty, et cetera, Mm -hmm. until they actually know what it looks like for you and what it looks like for them, then they will be honest to a point. Yeah. Um, They'll need to know they're not going to get penalized. Yeah, exactly. Truth. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as a coach, like I'm not a coach so much now, but as a coach, one of the most powerful things I think I ever did was actually say, I apologize. I'm going to get it wrong. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm going to get it wrong. Um, I will try and identify that and hold my hands up to it. I will accept that, Mm -hmm. but just know that I'm going to get it wrong. The way I put it was, I think we had six athletes and I said, look, I have a hat for each athlete, but I'm going to put the wrong hat on sometimes. Uh And I think just even saying this to the athletes, their shoulders were like, okay, okay. We're in this together kind of thing. This person's admitted that he's also can mess up you know yeah and um and that really brought down a few barriers i think yeah i think that's a really really good point it sort of breaks the tension it breaks the need for perfection doesn't it which of course is is unattainable you know athletes Mm -hmm. are going to make mistakes coaches will make mistakes referees make mistakes Uh, no one wants to make mistakes but that's that's just the way it goes isn't it 
Yeah, definitely. What what I would say though, Tommy, as well is like, you know, people think. So you know me from from time back, mm-hmm. and um, I was probably a little bit more of a brash northern boy then, a little bit. <laughs> what people would say, oh, don't get on the wrong side, or this or that, and and people think that that we've gone soft in sport a little bit because we embrace a little bit more about the mental side, a little bit mm-hmm. about, about the safeguarding side, the fragility of things. But I don't see it as, as we've gone soft. I see it as we've just got more knowledge. Yeah. You know, and you can do all this and still help develop a resilient, tough as shit person, you know? Mm-hmm. You can still do that. It doesn't mean that you're going to develop someone who's fragile. It's actually the opposite, really the opposite. And I, I'm a big believer in this, that, you know, our understanding is better. So we shouldn't just be doing what we used to do. We shouldn't just have the same kind of approach as, as we used to have. If I have the same approach now as I had in, in 2010, then I'm an absolute idiot hmm. in simple terms. I th- it's, it's interesting because I've had a few, few discussions with people about resilience, uh, not necessarily around sport, but around uh, education and, and with some uh, elements of uh, children with neurodiversity and children being taken out of school and people saying, well, they need to be, they can't just be taken out of situations they find hard. They've got to learn resilience. But for for me, the most important lesson to learn first is self-awareness and understanding what situations are going to benefit me and which ones are not. and, And how can I how can I reach the goal, but without breaking myself in the process? You know, we need to find a different way because the way that you will excel and reach the goal will be different to me, will be different to a child with neurodiversity or an adult uh, with learning difficulties or anything like that. It doesn't mean we can't reach the goal. It just means that we don't have to force everyone through the same tube in order to get there because we will we will break people. Uh, we will fail because we fail as adults or as coaches to identify the fact that people are different and they need to be treated differently uh, in order to get the best out of them. Have, have you ever had situations like that as a coach where you've said, you know, this is, we're going to really need to go a completely different angle uh, in order to get the best out of this person? Yeah. Um, I'm a Burnley fan um, and I stole something from Sean Dyche. I don't, is he so, Sean Dyche? I used to call him Sean Dyke. You know? Sean Dyche, I think it is. Yeah, but yeah, Sean Dyche. Sorry, Sean, but anyway, he was a proper hero. <laughs> I'm sure he's life, listening. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I stole something from an interview he had because it really summed up everything that, that I believed a system of coaching should have. And it was the term frameworks of flexibility. And, and I think that underpins my perspective on this, that we have a mm-hmm. framework. We have principles within that framework, but it's flexible enough to that we don't have to um, squeeze someone into it. It can actually mold around them a little bit so we can bring the individuality of the person in. And in, so in that respect, you, and you think about how, how people grow and develop and this term resilience and they need to not avoid these hard areas. But you also need to give levels of stress at the right time Mm-hmm. You know, and it needs to be done in, I think the term is hometic approach, where you drip it. Okay. You know, you, you slowly drip it in different situations. to So it's just on the edge of, of kind of failure. So they still yeah. can reach uh, deep practice. Sometimes people call it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, that's what really pushes the boundary. So, yes, they shouldn't avoid this situation. But, well, maybe that situation is too much at that moment. Yeah. Maybe we can break that situation down and drip it in. Mm-hmm. So the the often the thing that you find in in the sport that I'm involved in is is the different requirements of that in the different genders and in the different categories. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've been discussing discussing this recently, and heavyweight is a is a real injurious category, particularly female heavyweight. Okay. It's a real injurious category in taekwondo. Even if you think that you cover everything, it's it, it just is. And so often you have to take a little bit of a different approach with them. 
that you may not, it may not be that you, you train five times in the week of, of TKD and you do two resistance and you do one functional and you do, it may be that you do two days on one day off completely. Yeah. You know, and I, I think this again, it, it, it sounds like we're just trying to push an agenda, but it goes back to the relational understanding. And it also goes back to the group understanding. If there is a collective responsibility for this whole group to push forward, then each person understands each other's roles like we talked about. But Mm -hmm. everyone also understands that these roles are different. So everyone is individual. And because of that, they're more accepting to the fact that maybe one person in this group does something a little bit differently. Now, you, you can play on the edge of this sometimes, and it can go the wrong way because it can be that you're just favoriting someone and and then they end up looking like a prima donna and and they basically direct the group that's not what i'm saying what Mm -hmm. i'm saying is we have a flexibility that we can incorporate individual requirements within that group and sometimes them requirements mean that they have to do things differently Mm -hmm. and if you have this collective responsibility and this collective togetherness if you like um i guess all encompasses culture then people accept that People don't go, oh, but this person didn't do that training. They say, no, we understand why. You know, that we comes understand. down to comes down to communication, doesn't it? You know, yeah. it's, it comes down to those first those first interactions, that early embedding process into the into the group, I suppose, of the coaches and athletes understanding that you know everyone is different. We're we're aware of of our strengths. We're also aware that we won't get it right all the time. Um, and we're aware that it is it's always an experiment. You know, it's, we're always experimenting. We're always testing. We're always seeing what works. We're willing to change things. If it doesn't work just because I've made a decision doesn't mean I'm going to stick with it all the time. We're going to do whatever we feel is, is best to get you to, to reaching that, that long-term goal and also get that process bedded in. So it's, um, sport yeah, it's, is emergent. Absolutely. Life is emergent. We get absolutely. information and we have to adapt based on that information. Yeah. And, and these are the skills that we need to have. Yeah. To, to not be afraid to actually sometimes mm. tweak it and change it, you know. Um, and, and in that kind of collectiveness, I think the system itself needs to own the behaviors and, if you like, the values within it, the system, not the coaches. Mm. Because top sport changes quite quickly. Coaches can leave, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. But you still need that behavioral structure within there. So it needs to be owned by the system itself. So that a change of head doesn't mean it all capitulates and it breaks down and, and everyone goes and does their own thing. Absolutely. You know, if you like we, self-policed. Yeah. I, th- I think we see this in, uh, certainly in the sport that I'm most interested in, in, in football. You can see clubs that have come through the, the leagues, uh, such as uh, Brighton and Brentford, that have very clear identities of what their club is about. Mm-hmm they have a very clear identity of how they're going to conduct their their business the way they play uh, therefore the the roles that the players play on on the pitch and off the pitch and then that dictates their player recruitment system uh, or or method they know what skills they want their manager to have because they want him to be able to play a certain uh, style of football so therefore you're dropping round pegs into round holes all the time you're not mm-hmm. saying right okay here's here's uh, our manager's philosophy on how to play football, let's recruit like that. Then that manager gets the sack six months later and all of a sudden you've got a playing staff and coaching staff who don't fit the next manager's philosophy. So therefore we have to have a big churn again and change things. And you end up just doing this. You don't end up moving in that nice uh, direction upwards. Then I think that's that's like you say, getting that culture right, making that part of – of what it's all about. And then you just bring other coaches in or other athletes in, they come in and they just bed into that system. Yeah. I I remember going to a leaders in sport conference, I think it was 2015. And one of the round tables was about culture and values and Mm -hmm. so on. And someone spoke in it. I can't remember who it was, but he was, he was some association to Manchester United. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously everyone thought, oh, Manchester United, they have such a good culture and they have all this kind of thing. And, then you start to question, no, no, maybe it was just the manager's culture. Exactly. The manager's yeah, value. Absolutely. It wasn't owned by the system. It wasn't no. owned by the team even. It wasn't mm-hmm. probably owned by the franchise of it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, one of the crucial things when you're building something. It's to 
build something that if you vanished, it will still keep moving. Mm-hmm. You know, and then someone else can come and then maybe they bring a little bit different, you know, because it doesn't always have to be a round peg. It can also be a, a different shape peg that just moves it a little bit and tweaks it around because that can add spice and add value to it. Mm-hmm. But um, the system itself is is already moving. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah. that's an important part of, of all of this, I think. To go back to your very first question about building a system, absolutely. No, that's that's great. I mean, to to hear that you're actively helping the athletes build their self awareness, they're building their resilience in a way that isn't breaking them. Because we think of resilience as we've got to stress, 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 stress. Mm-hmm. Athletes, we've got to stress people all the time in order to make them stronger, unless they break, of course. And then you've got you know, a broken athlete. And then you say break. they're not resilient. That's that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Which shows a, a lack of self-awareness from the coaches and, and and those around them. So it's it's great. And of course, when you get a resilient athlete who's very self-aware, then they're probably more adaptable to situations. That's going to build their self-confidence. They'll be a bit more self-reliant on themselves as well. So you just get that more optimistic outlook for, for, for the coach and the athlete, don't you? That you're going to achieve that goal. And and then of course those skills that they've learned in the athletic side of things, as you alluded to, are perfectly transferable into any other role in life uh, that they possibly choose to, to go ahead with. So it's, um, yeah, I, I think it is our responsibility as, as people leading young people or, or athletes in sport to commit to helping them uh, not only within that sport, but also uh, in their future when they come out of, out of the, the sport as well. Completely, completely agree. Well, a massive thank you to Dave Cook for giving up his time and sharing his experience and his knowledge with us. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I think my personal highlight was him talking about sustainable sport, where he's talking about how we can't just have people come in, be in sport, put them through the ringer and then kick them out and discard them. I think those times uh, are are gone. I know the work that we're doing over at MK Dons with Ben Smith, uh, and and his team there is uh, certainly to try and help the young athletes there to understand that they're more than just a sports person. They've got a lot of abilities, a lot of values, and a lot of things they can bring to the world, both during their sport, but also away from the pitch as well. So thank you for listening. Uh, Do go to the YouTube channel and subscribe, and perhaps leave a comment or two if you've got any questions you'd like to ask Dave for the future be fantastic because we'll definitely be getting him back and if you're listening to this on the podcast just go on there and leave a review and also follow us on spotify apple podcast whichever one that you choose but thanks again hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you soon bye bye